Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as we mentioned, there are many praying alongside us, but the greatest comfort comes from our high priest who intercedes for us even as we worship him today. Then chapter five begins talking about how this high priesthood developed in his earthly life and how Jesus is greater than the other high priest that we find in scripture. And so our goal is to pursue Christ in a life of Christ-likeness as he represents us before the Father and as a model for us how to live and how to walk with God. So I want us to keep in mind as we look at verses seven and eight of Hebrews five, that if we're going to live as Jesus lived, we have to pray as Jesus prayed. So we're gonna base the whole message on crying out to God in a Christ-like way. And we're gonna focus on the why of our cry. Isn't that a question that comes to mind when you think about Jesus walking with the Father in complete dependence upon God? Why? Why would he make no decisions apart from the Father? Why would he not choose his followers apart from the Father? Why would he spend time with the Father every day? Well, we're gonna see a picture of that in this passage. And we're gonna come to the conclusion that if it was necessary for Jesus, how dare we try to live any other way than to live a lifestyle of crying out to God. So let's look together at Hebrews chapter five, verses seven and eight. Speaking of Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Let's pray together. Father, even as we hear mention of the suffering of Christ in this passage, we are so grateful that he suffered on our behalf. We're so grateful for his sinless life and his sinless 
sacrifice for us as he suffered and died to purchase our salvation. Father, I pray you'd create a fresh hunger in our lives to represent him well, to reflect him well to those around us. So Father, please speak to us today through your word because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's walk through this passage together. I love the way it begins, in the days of his flesh. That was a mere approximately 33 years. He lived and dwelled on this earth. The God of eternity, God the Son, became man in the days of his flesh. Then it tells us he offered up prayers and supplications. So the first thing I want you to notice about Jesus here is Jesus lived a life of prayer. Now, for people who have churchianity, they might wonder why it doesn't say in the days of his flesh, he was consistently attending synagogue worship. He consistently went to the temple. Or others in ministry might say he he consistently preached about the kingdom. The writer of Hebrews here, speaking of our great high priest, goes to the very heart of his life when he was here on this earth. And he said, he offers up, offered up prayers and supplications in the days of his flesh. It's kind of a shocking scene to think about that. One who lived such a sinless, perfect life, offering up prayers and supplications to God the Father. Now we're told in the gospels of little snippets of his walk with the Father. These represent multitudes of hours upon hours he spent with his Father. For instance, if you turn to Mark chapter one, verse 35, you find a picture there of how he began his day. Mark 1, 35. It says there, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out to a depart and departed to a solitary deserted place and there he prayed. All alone by himself, he got up, didn't gather the disciples. He went to be with the Father. There's a similar statement in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. It tells us in Luke 5, 16, Jesus often withdrew into the wilderness 
and prayed. The picture here is there was nothing attractive about what he was doing. He was sacrificing sleep and rest. He was breaking away from fellowship with others. He was going out into an undesirable place out in the wilderness alone. But it was the most desirable place of his day because it was all about the Father. Haven't you found that to be true in your life? You can be in some of the worst places, but if you're with someone you love, it becomes somewhat of a sacred place of memory once you survive that place. Well, here Jesus every day had this special place where he would slip away from others and simply be alone with God. Now he called upon others in the Sermon on the Mount to enter their closet in privacy to pray. I like to picture those scenes in the wilderness like this. Jesus, the creator of the universe, the one by whom and for whom all things were created, slipped out into the wilderness as the prayer closet of his vast creation. And there he met with the Father. He lived a life of prayer. Isn't it tragic that we can jump out of bed, uh, get in a hurry, preparing to meet people, not take time to meet with God? Some people say, well, I spend time with God every day I can because my day always goes better. That's a an after effect. Jesus wasn't driven in the wilderness to have a good day. He was there to be with his good father. And as the overflow of that, he guided him and he empowered him to do everything he desired for him to do that day. Hence, Jesus could say at the end of his life, I've done everything you asked me to do. Well, then in Luke chapter six, verse 12, we find him going out on a mountain and spending the entire night in prayer. Most of the time we connect that with what happens after that day where he went in the nighttime to pray. It was the next day that he chose the 12. But if you look closely at Luke chapter six, verse 11 and the context prior to that, Jesus was coming under attack. People were trying to trip him up and and looking for ways to bring him down. And in the context of that overwhelming opposition, Jesus didn't turn to his followers. He turned to his father and spent the entire night in prayer. And he also bathed that decision in prayer of choosing those who would be with him. So we find him praying in the morning. We find him praying all night. We find him during the day interacting with the disciples, one moment talking to the Father, the next. He lived a life of prayer. Now, how did he do that? Well, he viewed life differently than we do. 
You see, you and I pray in the atmosphere or context of life, don't we? We, we talk to God, we enter into our life and, and it's kind of a reactionary prayer to what's going on in life. And so we pray in the atmosphere or context of life, but Jesus lived in the atmosphere or context of prayer. His life was like an open-ended conversation with the Father. He was beginning the day, living the day, ending the day in fellowship with the Father. That'll make a big difference in all of our lives, won't it? I would challenge you to go through the day not saying amen at the end of your prayers. You know what we tend to do? We tend to sign on, pray, and then we sign off or we log out. But Jesus lived an open-ended conversation with the Father. So I, I'm just challenging you, don't end your prayers. Just, just move from that into the rest of what he's doing and, and allow him to guide you. You know what you'll find? It, it's hard to gossip while you're praying. It, it's difficult to sin while you're praying. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to lose sight and perspective when you're living a life of prayer. That's exactly what Jesus did. When he was here on this earth in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications to God. Let's look at the second thing about his crying out to God the Father. Jesus completely trusted and relied upon the Father. It says he offered up prayers and supplications. The word supplication simply means approaching someone for a favor. Now, you probably didn't use that word this week. Could I supplicate you to help me move some furniture? You wouldn't speak of it that way. But it's a, it's a picture of that. It's a picture of coming to someone, asking for them to show favor to you and to do a favor for you and when you ask someone to do that, what are you saying? I need what only you can give. I'm, I'm looking for help and, and you're the place I'm looking. So when it says he offered up prayers, he talked to the father, but there were those times where he was supplicating or offering supplication to the father, seeking his favor and begging him to bring favors into his life the favor of power and the favor of wisdom and the favor of discernment, whatever it might have been, courage, whatever he was crying out for, he was not looking anywhere other than the Father. He offered up in the days of his flesh prayers and supplications to God. He completely trusted and relied upon the Father. In Luke chapter 9, and also it's recorded in the other gospel, Luke chapter 9, Jesus comes to a point where he's teaching the multitudes. We call this the feeding of the 5,000. 
Actually, it says there were 5,000 men. You multiply women and children, it balloons to maybe 15 to 20,000 people. And they begin to get hungry and the day begins to get long. And in Luke chapter nine, you find a description of what happened there. The disciples come and they make a suggestion to Jesus. They give him some advice. Have you ever given Jesus advice? I'm sure he didn't take it. And so it tells us in verse 12 of Luke 9, when the day began to wear away, the 12 came and said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place here. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. Good Baptist. Looked at what they had, looked at what it would cost, uh, looked at the issues. We can't feed them. We have five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for these people. In another gospel, it tells us that they said, but what are they among so many? For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the, the five loaves and the two fish and he did something nobody else thought to do. He factored the father into the equation. And looking up to heaven, he broke and blessed the food and gave them to the disciples set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and 12 baskets of leftover fragments were taken up by them. That's such a picture of how Jesus depended upon the father. The father was not his last resort. The father was his first reaction. As a family, have you ever been caught up in a decision that was overwhelming and the odds were not in your favor and nothing seemed to be possible and and you factored in all of your resources and all of your wisdom and all that you and your family members could bring to that situation, but all the while you failed to factor in the Father? Have you ever been part of a church meeting where Everybody started talking and and thinking horizontally and and nobody thought to think vertically and factor the father into that equation. Perhaps we've been doing that as a nation. We look at the situation in our nation, we think, oh, it's never gonna change. It's gonna fall apart. There's nothing that could happen that would make it better. It's all doom and gloom. What we are failing to do as God's people is we are failing to factor the Father into the equation. In season after season, exactly like this with declension in the church and the disease of sin in society, that was the setting in which God brought great movements of revival and spiritual awakening. 
It's when it's out of the hands of men and into the hands of God that God unleashes his power and his blessing to his people. And so Jesus models that for us. He looked up to heaven. Are you doing that in your everyday life? Are you finding yourself so embroiled in the battle that you you fail to look up? I notice that in my life when I'm under stress and maybe opposition or whatever, my, my shoulders tighten, my neck gets a little stiff and I kind of have this downward lean because the, the weight is there. Anybody ever experienced that? You know what you need to do? You need to lift your chin and look to heaven and factor the Father into everything that's going on. That's part of crying out to God. It's in those desperate situations that we become desperate for God to do what only God can do. And we know if he doesn't do it, we are doomed and disaster is inevitable. But Jesus offered up prayers and supplications to God and he factored the favor of the Father into that equation. He was completely dependent upon the Father to guide and provide in his life, even when it involved a multitude and all they had was a lunchable. Jesus completely trusted and relied upon the Father. Those are the first two steps to crying out to God. I've got to begin to live a life of prayer. I've got to say, I'm not gonna just say prayers, I'm gonna really pray. And I've got to go to that next level where I'm asking God to work in my family's life, in my life, in the life of our church, in our community, our state, our nation, our world. I've I've got to supplicate him for his favor of blessing, whether it's through judgment or discipline, whatever he chooses to bring about his plan and his purpose in our lives. That's the beginning point. That's where Jesus lived. He lived a life of prayer. He was completely trusting and relying upon the Father. And then a third thing you find in Hebrews chapter five is Jesus prayed with all his heart, all of his life. Jesus prayed with all of his heart, all of his life. In the days of his flesh, He offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to God. Now here's where the transition happens. We may be fairly, maybe fairly customary for us to offer prayers to God, whether they're correct or whether they're genuine, we, we offer up prayers. Uh, we supplicate God for his favor. Maybe not intensely, but casually at times. But notice how Jesus did that. With vehement cries and tears to God. Here's how it says in the Amplified Version. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up definite, special petitions 
for that which he not only wanted but needed and supplications with strong crying and tears to him who was always able to save him out from death. Jesus prayed with all his heart for all of his life on this earth. I'll be the first to say, you can't say that about me. I've prayed some pretty heartless prayers. I've prayed some some half-hearted prayers. I've prayed some ritualistic prayers, some vain repetitions where I heaped up words without thinking about what I was saying. Have you? Yes, it's common. But that's not correct. If we want to be like Jesus, we got to offer up prayers with all of our heart, all of our life. Just think about when you send a child to school. You never know what a day holds. That student could come in contact with someone to have influence on them, a peer that could turn their heart away from God and the things of his kingdom. It takes about five minutes for a life to begin to be trashed. It, it takes one inappropriate conversation by a spouse and, and marriages begin to crumble. We, we fail to realize how fragile life is and, and shouldn't we be crying out with vehement cries to God that are passionate and persistent for those that we love? Do you realize how desperate our church is for a touch from God? All we are is a religious institution apart from a powerful blessing of God's manifest presence among us. That's what distinguishes us from any other social organization. We represent the person of Christ. It is our goal to bring this generation to Jesus. It's our goal to experience the manifest presence of God when we worship and therefore it, it requires a prayer that's deeper than bless the preacher and bless the singing and hope we have a good crowd. No, we ask God to pour out his blessing here and to do through us what only he can do. Jesus didn't pray half-hearted, thoughtless prayers. He didn't pray shallow surface prayers. His prayers were intentional and intense. He offered prayers and supplications with vehement or desperate cries and tears. Vehement cries means an, an outcry. It means to step out of yourself. It means to, to come to God and as the psalmist does, we, we read it ink on a page and we think, well, he was just saying, Lord, hear my prayer. No, he was saying, Lord, hear my prayer. 
Lord, be gracious to me. I'm desperate for you. As a deer thirsts for the water brook, so my heart thirsts for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Have you ever been to that depth of prayer, perhaps on behalf of a family member or a friend, and you were crying out and you had this outcry of prayer? You didn't care who heard it. You didn't care what people thought. You just knew if I don't connect with God right now, I have no hope. Jesus prayed with a fervency about his praying. It was an outcry or a a cry of sorrow or a cry of lamentation. It was a desperate, earnest cry for help. We think immediately of the Garden of Gethsemane where he's wrestling with the issue of the sacrifice of himself for the sin of the world. We think of him on the cross crying out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was praying those intense prayers from the bottom of his heart, not off the top of his head. He was crying out to God with all of his heart, all of his life. May God do the same in our lives. Then fourthly, Jesus lived to glorify the Father by doing his will. He lived a life of prayer. He completely trusted and relied upon the Father. He prayed with all of his heart, all of his life. And here's the why of the cry. He lived to glorify the Father by doing his will. Look how the passage goes on. With vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him out of death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And just think about that picture there. He had a godly fear, a reverence for the Father. He had a a loyalty and a love and a reverence for the Father that was just a, a godly, godly fear. Just an acknowledgement of his his holiness and his complete love for him and the intimacy they had. And he, he didn't want to do anything to damage that. He had this godly fear that drove him. That was the why of his praying. You see, if you picture the praying of Jesus as a railroad track, there are two rails that guided everything he did and everything he prayed. The first one was, the Father's glory. If you look at John 17, 1, he's entering into a time of prayer at the end of his earthly life and he says, I have glorified you. Then he says, glorify your son that I may glorify you. So when he prayed, he didn't pray about his personal comfort. He didn't stop there. He didn't pray about just trivial issues. He prayed prayers that were 
driven and empowered by a deep desire for God the Father to be glorified. Then the other rail is the Father's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, remember how he prayed? Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You remember how he taught us to pray in the model prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was teaching us and modeling for us the reality that prayer is not me getting my will done in heaven, but it's me seeking to have God's will done here on the earth. That's how he prayed. That's how he lived. So the Father's glory and the Father's will guided every thought, every decision, every moment, guided his praying, his preaching, his interacting with the disciples, always down those rails of the Father's glory and the Father's will. I'm asking you today, is that where you pray? Or do you pray outside those rails? Have you found a train wreck in your praying where you've, you've left the rails that God designed for us to pray on. If I'm praying selfish, silly, stingy, shallow prayers, I've derailed my prayer life. I've, I've derailed my life because I'm, I'm desiring things that God has no desire for me to have. I'm longing for things that God does not have as part of the best for me. But when I'm praying for his glory and his will, everything that comes into my life and answer those prayers comes directly from a God who loves me more than I love myself and knows what is best for me. That's the way Jesus prayed. He prayed with godly fear out of a life of obedience. He was doing the Father's will, he feared and reverenced the Father and his glory and that shaped everything about his praying. Well, then finally and fifthly, Jesus desired to obey the Father regardless of cost or consequence. These last two points are truly the the why of the cry. The first three and the first part of that passage talks about what he did and, and how he did it. But now we're, we're down into the motives of the master, the mind of the Messiah. He lived for the Father's glory and the Father's will and he desired to obey the Father regardless of the cost or consequence. Do you come to God with open arms and say, Father, I will do whatever it is regardless of the cost or consequence. You see, when Jesus was wrestling there in the garden of Gethsemane in prayer, it says it got so intense that that he was overwhelmed and he told the disciples even to the point of death. He sweated as it were great drops of blood. Then angels are sent by the Father to strengthen him. We don't see that happening at the cross. The intensity here is so strong. It's not just about a physical death. It's about bearing the weight of the judgment of God upon all sin, that being poured out that he would pay the ultimate price for us. And there he says, not my will, but yours be done. Why? He wanted to obey the Father regardless of the cost or consequence. Notice what it says in verse eight. Though he was a son, 
yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. The word learn there doesn't mean that he gained knowledge. It means that he learned through experience. Through that human experience of obeying the Father and suffering, he, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He, he went through that experiential understanding of what it means to suffer and obey. Here's the reality. I could ask you today, are you willing to obey God? Good. We're in church on Sunday. Yes, all of us are gonna say, I'm willing to obey God. I'll obey anything I hear him say and we kind of plug our ears or whatever. Yeah, whatever. But the flip side was true of Jesus as well. He was not just willing to obey the father. He was unwilling to disobey him. You get the image there? He was saying, Father, I will do anything but disobey you. I don't care what the cost is. I don't care what the consequence. I will do anything but disobey the Father. Man, that's a depth of praying, isn't it? That's a depth of crying out. And he learned obedience as he prayed and he walked with the Father. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Now, if I were to ask you, where did you learn to pray? You might say, well, at home, at a bedtime scene with my parents. And that is a great place to learn those basic practices of prayer. Or you might say, well, it was also in my Sunday school class where I gathered with my peers and the Bible was taught by people that were committed to the word of God and to the people of God. And they taught us how to pray and they modeled that and encouraged us to pray. Or we might say, well, it was in our youth group. We would gather and we would have these special retreats and camps and we we learned to pray there. But I would venture to say most of us, even though we might say that initially, you know where I learned to pray? I learned to pray down in the depths of despair and depression, down in the depths of pain an impossibility, isn't that where we really learn to connect with God? You learn those fundamental things about prayer from others and that's great, but there are sometimes when those training wheels just kind of unravel and they come off and there you are in the depths, you're drowning and you're crying out to God. That's where we learn to pray. Just think about the times in your life where you have lived at that intersection of pain and prayer. Have you ever been there? where you are there in the intersection of pain and prayer and and you're desperate for God to do something. And if he doesn't do it, you have no hope. I'll give you an example from my life. I went through a very, very dark tunnel. But for the grace of God and a godly loving bride, I don't know how I was sustained. It was not just a week, it was not just a month, it was a couple of years. Some of the prime time of our family life, our marriage was great, Uh, my interaction with the boys was great, the ministry was going okay. 
but I was just down in the depths. And I would be close to people and I'd feel a, a big chasm between us. I would preach and people would be encouraged and revived in that. And I would think, but God, what about me? What's going on here? I don't know. I'm, I'm intimate with you. I'm seeking you. And, and there's this, this dark tunnel I'm in. I don't know how I got here. I don't know how to get out. And I began to feel myself wanting to just close off away from others, but, but knew that was not the answer. And it rocked on for that lengthy period of two plus years. And a speaker was coming to Odessa. We were about 80 miles from there. It was a Promise Keeper event. His name was Steve Farrar. I had read some of what he wrote and I had heard clips on videos, but I I thought, I want to go hear him speak. But I thought, you know, that after that noon, it's going to be a bunch of preachers in the room. And and they're going to be testifying about their churches. You know how they do, Bob. Churches are always growing. Staff's great. Da-da-da. I didn't want to hear it. Tried to talk myself out of going, but I thought, you know, better judgment, I probably should just force myself to go. So I drive over there by myself. You're not gonna believe this part of the story. I got there early, even with the time change. Even losing an hour, I got there early. The doors were locked. This community kind of building. So I I go out by this pond with rocks and real scenic scenic place. I'm walking around that pond and I'm, I'm crying out to God. And I'm saying, God, I, I don't know how much longer I can last. I just don't want to live like this anymore. And I began to sob and I I said to God, I said, God, if if you don't speak to me today, I don't think I can take another breath. I don't think I can take another step. You've got to speak to me, please, please, please speak to me. And I looked around to make sure nobody was seeing me out there just crying like a baby. The doors opened, preachers began to go in. So I waited till it was, a little late, like a minute or two late, so I'd feel comfortable. So I, I went walking in, sat with some strangers. They all knew each other and things were going great in their lives just like I anticipated. And I thought, if I can just get through this meal, he's gonna speak, God, you've got to speak to me. Well, it comes time for him to speak. I'll never forget it. He gets up and it, it appears he's not prepared to speak. He's kind of stammering, looking off, thinking of what he's gonna say next. And I was getting mad. 
I was thinking, inside I'm yelling, you got to be kidding me. I'm desperate to hear from God and you just show up and you're up there just stammering around and you don't have a word that, that God could use in my life. I'm, I'm just like, God, what is going on here? And then something happened. It's like he looked off and he looked back and he leaned over the pulpit and he said, I want to tell you about our family vacation. Well, I'm mad and I'm thinking, oh, this would be great. I love hearing. Only thing missing slides or videos. He said, on our family vacation, we went down to the coast. I forget what state and we toured a submarine. He said, on that tour of the submarine, they, they talked about all the pressure involved in taking a submarine down into the depths. And they told us about how dangerous it is where if the pressure gets in the wrong place and it gets too high, it could explode. Then he leaned forward and he said, man, some of you today are out in the depths. Well, I went from being angry to on the edge of my seat. He was talking to me. And he continued to talk about what it was like to live in the depths. Wondering if God is really using me or going to use me. And if I have a future and a hope, if, if, if I'm ever going to get out of this depth that I'm in. And the longer he talked, he said, uh, some of you men are in the depths. Then he said, at least one of you are in the depths today. And then finally he was saying, one of you is in the depths. And I want you to know, brother. And I was like a sponge, just, it was like a lifeline. I'm drowning. He's throwing me a lifeline. And he finished speaking. And this is what he prayed. Father, I thank you for what you had me say today because you know I didn't intend to say anything of what I just said. And Father, I pray that the man you sent me here to talk about and to talk to heard from you today because he's in the depths. He closed his prayer People began to leave. They were talking about going to play golf or different things. And, and I, I made a beeline up to Steve Farrar. And all I wanted to say is I'm the man. And I couldn't talk. All I could do was cry. And I, I just looked at him and I cried and, and I shook his hand. I tried to talk and he... He pulled me in and put his arm around me and said, it's gonna be okay, brother. It's gonna be okay. So I left. As I walked out, I got in the vehicle to leave and I sat there in amazement watching people lightheartedly leave that place knowing this was a divine appointment for me. Have you ever been there where Maybe nobody else got it, but God was talking to you. And it was just you and him 
and he loved you so much. He, he laid on the preacher's mind or in the preacher's heart what to say and it connected and he knew it was gonna be okay. Finally, after everybody was gone, I just sat there for a moment. Then I started driving away and, and, and this is what happened. It, it was like, you know, when you're underwater and you, whoosh, and you can breathe. And the joy of the Lord filled that vehicle. And I began to worship him. And I began to, to just be caught up in the joy of the Lord and his overwhelming love for me. Long about Andrews, about halfway home, I, I started trying to remember how I felt before I got, it, got to that place and I couldn't remember that place, it was gone. And I came home and I, I told Deanne, nothing's changed, but everything's changed. So when we hear of Jesus praying like that, it, it usually takes the depths to get us there. And if you've been in the depths, that's where you learn to pray. Because you learn he's all you have, but yet he's all you need. If you're in the depths today, don't forget that. Keep calling out to him. Keep seeking him. Keep reading his word. Keep talking to him. You're in good company. You're, you're in the realm of Elijah and Jeremiah and Jesus distressed to the point of death. You're, you're down in the depths, but you're gonna come away with truth. And that's where you learn to pray. That's where you learn to connect with God. It takes that intensity to give birth to intimacy with him. Charles Spurgeon says this about Jesus. His griefs were baptized in prayer. It cost him cries and tears to learn the lesson of his sufferings. He never suffered without prayer and he never prayed without suffering. He just walked with God, the Father. So don't be afraid of the depths. Have a godly fear for God. And even in the depths, have an undying desire to obey the Father regardless of the cost or consequence. And I'm telling you, it's worth it. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.